Melissa gets the best readings, doesn't she? It's a pretty harrowing portion of scripture. Good morning all, and hello to everybody watching this online. Uh, I'm Jim McInnes, one of the um, pastors, members of the team here. Te inoi he whakawhitiwhiti, kōrero ki te atua. Prayer, conversations with God. I actually think the word conversations feels a little, a little too gentle uh, for today's message on one of the most profound and powerful forms of prayer, intercession. Was Moses merely conversing with God when he begged him in Egypt not to wipe out Israel and then says to God that if he's determined to do so, to please destroy him also? This is what Moses says to God in desperation. But now, if you will only forgive their sin, but if not, block me out from the book you have written. Think about that. That's an extraordinary plea and proposal from Moses to God. Would you damn your own soul for the sake of some sinners who are seldom grateful for your leadership and frequently offending God? Because that's what Moses actually did. And so I think the word conversation seems too placid for what Moses was doing in that moment. Pleading, maybe. Begging. Blackmailing, perhaps. Hardly a polite conversation. Paul says something similar to Moses in his letter to the Romans. Though not speaking directly to God, he expresses a very similar sentiment when he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. Hang on. Did he just also suggest that he would rather be eternally condemned than see none of his fellow Jews saved? Yes, he did. And when we remember how Paul's fellow Jews actually treated him, tried to run him out of every town he preached him in and tried to stone him, we marvel that he could say such a thing. So who says stuff like this, like Moses, like Paul? Intercessors. That's who. This message is about intercession, and we'll get to that harrowing Ezekiel passage in a moment, but first... Some general thoughts on intercession. We might think that Moses and Paul are in a class of their own when it comes to spiritual leadership, and perhaps they are. But as intercessors, I don't think they actually are in a class of their own. And how do we know this? Because, and please forgive the parallel, but anybody who has watched someone die of illness has perhaps prayed a prayer, it might be a misguided prayer, but has said something like this to God if they really love that person. Lord, if you've got to take someone, why not me? It might be a mistaken prayer, but we can't doubt the sincerity of such a prayer. This incredible love for someone. It's like, Lord, if someone's got to go here, let it be me. The nature of total selfless love is the willingness to substitute yourself for another so that they might live. Jesus said as much, didn't he? No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. And this is, of course, what characterizes Christ's 
own love for us, a self-sacrificial substitution for us to the point of death. And so Jesus is is therefore the ultimate uh, intercessor and the paradigm for all intercession. In 1 Timothy we read, For there is one God, there is also one mediator, one intercessor between God and humankind, Christ Jesus. But not only Jesus, also the Spirit. Because Scripture tells us that as we pray, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So intercession is in the very nature of God and sums up in some important ways the ministry of Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now we know that Jesus intercedes with the Father in a particular way that we cannot. Only Christ can substitute his sinless life in an atoning sense for our sinful lives so that we might be forgiven and raised from the dead. Yet we can clearly intercede in other ways, as did Moses, as did Paul. We can intercede for a friend, a family member, someone who's sick, someone in need. And we can intercede on behalf of those who do not, know, do not yet know God. Intercession for non-believers, that they might come to faith, is perhaps one of the most normal forms of intercession, or at least we might say it could be, it should be. And I suggest it could be familiar to all of us, something we all practice, not just the select few prayerful types. We like to think of certain people as the intercessors. Are we not all called to intercession? Intercession is possibly a standard vital sign of a healthy Christian life. Maybe to not practice intercession might be a sign that our spiritual life is not fully functional. But before you feel too guilty for not going through your day interceding for all the pre-believers around you, I'm going to admit that neither do I. But then I'm going to say, I, I don't know that my spiritual life is necessarily the benchmark. I suspect that a well-tuned spiritual life does in fact have an intercessory dimension to it where we are asking God frequently to touch the lives of people around us. And I can remember a time when that was maybe a little more the case for me. And I can even recall a prayer for someone that I loved that in its own small way was a little bit like the prayer of Moses or the prayer of Paul. At age 23, I encountered God in a very real way on a mission base in the Czech Republic on this kind of young adult Christian gap year. As 10 years of buried anger and grief at losing a father surfaced and God lifted it off me and God filled me with a deep sense of his love, one day I just quite suddenly fell on my knees in the snow outside this mission base and found myself begging God to help my twin brother also find whatever healing and love he might need in life because it dawned on me he too lost a father. And I thought, as I thought about my own encounter with God, this inner healing that was taking place for me, 
surprising and intense love for my twin brother just flooded me and I begged God not to do for me what he was not also going to do for my brother at some point in his life. I'm not sure I was even praying at the time when that suddenly I was caught up in that experience and that love for my brother just filled me as I thought of him. Words just spilled out of me with intensity. You might call it spontaneous, unexpected intercession. Look out. It might happen to you. Now, for some people, moments of intercession are not spontaneous. They're not even unexpected. Why? Because they cultivate a life of intercessory prayer. As an intern in my 20s in a Presbyterian church in Palmerston North, I met such a person. I met a woman who'd been filled with the Spirit in the charismatic movement as a Catholic. Did you know the Catholics could have the Holy Spirit too? Some of us Protestants need reminding they do actually worship the same God as us. When I met her, this woman, woman had such a well-developed uh, gift of intercession and prayer life that she would frequently wake at all times of the night as the Holy Spirit brought to mind, to her mind, people in far-flung places in need. And she would spend hours and hours in the night praying for them, willingly using her gift of intercession to serve a God who clearly didn't respect her need for sleep. But I can tell you, and the intercessors will nod, that intercessors are well aware that God is no respecter of our need to sleep. <laughs> it's in the night that intercessors often do their most important work. So I think that intercessors are quietly sitting on a massive secret that we should all be aware of. Prayer for others can in fact move God. Not Magically, not formulaically, we can't force God's hand, but it seems that we can persuade God to have mercy. We can ask God to act. And I think when we do, there's an important spiritual principle at work, a basic principle, the effective power of love. Intercession is an act of love, is it not? To plead the cause of someone else before God is loving. It fulfills the second great commandment. To love your neighbour as yourself. That's where the power comes in. It was love, of course, that moved me to intercede for my brother many years ago in the Czech Republic. It was selfless Christian love that woke that mature intercessor night after night after night to pray for people around the world who she'd never meet. Christian love, in the fullest sense, does just what that intercessor did. It reaches out beyond family, beyond those who will reciprocate our love, to strangers, to non-believers, to enemies, in fact, to those who might even nail you to a cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Imagine saying that, the words of Jesus. That is the epitome of intercession. How do we love our enemies? How do we love those who've wronged us? We pray for them.
Intercession in its most mature expression begs God for mercy for those who wrong us, for those who warrant divine judgment. Now, divine wrath and judgment are not popular themes these days. You might cringe at the mention of them. But do think for a moment about what Moses was doing as he advocated for his own removal from God's eternal book of life if it would only keep Israel within it. Moses was standing between a God who was ready to unleash wrath and judgment on a faithless people, and he knew that that's what he was doing. Now, this raises a theological question for us, which I think to put in non-theological terms is basically to ask, is God mean? Is God nasty by nature? Is God less loving than we are, dare I ask that question? So that only a kind human intercessor can stop an angry God unleashing wrath. I think that's a mischaracterization of God. I think, to be honest, it's a misreading of Scripture. We learn in Scripture that God is merciful. Yes, God is a judge, but God is merciful and patient. And intercessors appeal on the basis of God's love and patience and mercy for God to avert judgment, to suspend, if you like, the consequences of sin, to have mercy, to show grace. And Jesus submitted himself to crucifixion precisely so that divine mercy might triumph over judgment. However, there are terrifying passages of scripture where we encounter God's wrath and judgment. And our text for today is most certainly one of those. The beginning of Ezekiel chapter 9. God has run out of patience with Judah and Jerusalem. Their sins are manifold, including extreme violence, rampant injustice, and religious idolatry practiced by the priests of Israel, no less. The covenant curses are now enacted. When a prophetic oracle begins with the words, draw near you executioners of the city, you know it's not going to be good. <laughs> And in this blood-soaked passage, six angels stepped forward, ready to slaughter the city. We read, And six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his weapon for slaughter in his hand. Those angels represent the invading armies that God is about to send in to overrun his holy city. Now, what I find fascinating about this passage is not the dangerous angels, but the, but the bureaucrat hanging out with them. Among them was a man clothed in linen with a writing case at his side. What's a university professor doing kicking around with the angelic Wagner group or however we want to you know, imagine them? He's actually a key figure as the passage unfolds, and that's no ordinary writing case that he carries. The Lord called to the man clothed in linen who had the writing case at his side and said to him, Go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Interesting. This mysterious administrator has a fascinating job to do. He gets to paint 
a single Hebrew letter on the foreheads of certain people. The word for Mark is the Hebrew uh, letter Tav, which in its oldest form scholars think was displayed as an X, hence a mark on the forehead of select people who will be spared the coming judgment. Once those lucky few are processed, all hell breaks loose. God commands the six angels to pass through the city after him and kill. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Cut down old men, young men and young women, little children and women. It's a really a harrowing passage. But touch no one who has the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. God starts the slaughter with the priests, those who should have modelled holiness. It's a grisly spectacle. Our interest, though, is not the bloodbath, but in who gets spared. Who gets the coveted mark on the forehead? Not those closest to the sanctuary, nor women and children, nor the elderly but rather those who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in the city. Interesting. We might say the intercessors. Probably more precisely the righteous in general, because that's what's implied by sighing and groaning over the sinfulness of the city. These are those who keep the law. These are those who still love God while most of the nation goes its own way. But I find it quite interesting as to how the righteous are portrayed, specifically as those who sigh and groan over the sins of the nation. And the Hebrew rhyming words here, translated as sigh and groan, mean a kind of moaning and groaning in distress and anguish. These are people who grieve the state of the unrighteousness around them. They are those who see the sins of the world and lament before God, and that is what intercessors do. And so intercession is not all warm prayers for well-deserving people. Rather, intercession is an anguished cry for a broken world and a desperate plea for divine intervention. And if we read scripture, we realize that intervention may come as judgment or it may come as mercy. That's God's business, not ours. The Christian intercessor, following Christ's example and with his great sacrifice in mind, pleads, of course, for divine mercy on a fallen world. The intercessor sighs and groans before God for the moral degradation of society, for broken families, for war-torn countries, for domestic violence, for racial hatred, for economic inequality, for ecological destruction, for the pervasive spiritual blindness around them, and for every form of evil. The intercessor doesn't look away. They don't downplay the darkness they see. Rather, they plead with God in anguished desperation for light to break in. The righteous weep for the world in prayer. Do you re weep for the world in prayer? 
as a young man just prior to that time in the Czech Republic, God was beginning to draw me back from that alienation from him that resulted from my father's death and how I responded to that. And it dawned on me one day in my um, walk with God that I seldom actually cried, that I don't know if I had cried since my father had passed away many years before. Most men don't like to cry, and I had a sense, but I had a sense that it wasn't right to never do so. Clearly, I was emotionally bound, but I was also growing in my prayer life at the time, and I asked God to give me the gift of tears. A strange thing to ask for, perhaps. I don't quite know why I asked it. I think I was reading Richard Foster at the time or something, something on spiritual formation. I sensed that there was a sensitivity to God that grieves when God grieves, that can be moved by what moves the heart of God, and that may at times even weep in prayer. Now, embarrassingly, God obliged, and since then, tears come quite readily to me when I pray. (laughs) I just say this to say you can actually ask God to teach you to pray. And to move you in prayer for others. You don't have to muster up the emotion, even the will. Just make yourself available to God and ask the Spirit of God to teach you to pray and perhaps even to weep for the world, just as God does. You see, to intercede is to remain sensitized to God's grieving heart, to actually do what the priests of Israel were supposed to do, to mediate the people to God and to mediate God to the people. And that is our priestly role, to stand before God and plead the cause of a broken, fallen world and to model and display the love of God to the world around us. Would we receive that mark on the forehead in Ezekiel's Jerusalem? a sobering question to think about, isn't it? We read in Luke's gospel of Jesus approaching Jerusalem. As he came near and saw the city, he did what? He wept over it. There's our model. And so let me ask us, when did we last weep for Auckland? I don't know that I ever have but I believe I should. Our church website states our intent for the good of Auckland City. Guess what's good for Auckland? Your tears, my tears, intercessory prayer, prophetic lament, the kind of prayer that sounds a little like Moses or Paul. God, do not bless this city. Sorry, do not bless me without blessing my neighbour. Do not save us, your people, without saving the city also. And so that's my challenge to us today in this series of prayer. God intervenes in cities, societies, churches, families, and individual lives when God's people are desperate enough to plead for divine mercy. It's the prayers of the saints that season the world with healing, hope, repentance, reconciliation and renewal. Are we willing to pray?
I'd just like to ask the band to come up. You were hopefully given a piece of card as you came in today. Is that right? Most of you get a piece of card and pen. Very good. Heads nodding. If you didn't, um, please put your hand up. We're going to make sure we distribute some to those who don't have a piece of card. Now, in a moment, the band are going to play the haunting St. Augustine's song, Shalom, which I think is very fitting. Uh, And we are going to write intercessory prayers. Compose a prayer for Auckland City. Compose a prayer for the world. Compose a prayer for anyone. A plea to God. And then when we come forward for communion, there'll be baskets here. You can drop your prayers in those baskets and we'll display them in the church office along with other prayers that we have displayed from our Kingdom Come Nights this year. If your prayer is private and you don't want it displayed, just just hold on to it. Keep it uh, for yourself. Okay, I, just before the song, I want to pray on our behalf for Auckland City, a city that God loves. Let me pray. Lord God, to have your hand of grace lift off a city or a nation must be a terrifying thing. And we know you see the sins of the city and it must grieve you greatly. The inequality, Lord, the neglect of the poor, the crime and violence, the various forms of injustice, the pursuit of many gods other than you. Father, forgive the sins of Aucklanders. Forgive the betrayal of trust that takes place behind closed doors and family homes. Forgive the greed and indifference of many towards the poor. Forgive the racial hatred that manifests in ugly ways. Forgive the damage we do to the environment. Forgive the church where we have closed our eyes and turned away from those in need. Forgive us, Lord, who are believers if we've felt superior or self-righteous towards non-believers or people of other faiths. Forgive us for all the times that we preach one thing and practice another. Lord, have mercy on Auckland. Have mercy on us your witnesses in the city, and do not lift your hand of grace, Lord, off our city or off our nation. Come, Lord God, in power, manifest your love, your truth, your light, your justice. Fill the city with your presence, Lord. Amen.